This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Grace Paley's story, My Father Addresses Me on the Facts of Old Age, which was published in The New Yorker in 2002. The main thing is this. When you get up in the morning, you must take your heart in your two hands. You must do this every morning. That's a metaphor, right? Metaphor? No, no, you can do this. The story was chosen by Alan Gerganis, who is the author of five books of fiction, including the novel Oldest Living Confederate Widow Tells All and the novella collection Local Souls. His stories have been appearing in The New Yorker since 1974. Hi, Alan. Hi, Deborah. Good to hear you. You too. You said that Grace Paley was your teacher, your writing teacher at one point. Where and when was that? It was about 1969 at Sarah Lawrence College. I had just come off the USS Yorktown serving a a mandatory draft stint in the U.S. Navy during the war in Vietnam. And, of course, Grace had devoted most of her adult life to trying to end that war. (laughs) So it was a weird combination of uh, acceptance and forgiveness. She saw that I was trying to write and encouraged me and led me to Isaac Babel and Chekhov and all the people who've mattered most to me as writers and uh, conducted an amazing class that wound me right into it. So it was a huge transition from the Yorktown to Sarah Lawrence. What influence do you think she had on your writing? I think the greatest inspiration was her belief, her fervent socialist belief, that everybody is eloquent when telling their own story. And her faith in voice which is demonstrated with the story we're going to hear today. She conducted the strangest class I've ever been in, which everybody talked all the time. (laughs) And I grew up in a little village in North Carolina where people whispered only occasionally, individually. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was extraordinary that she would stand up like a conductor and say, no, listen to what Nell is saying. Nell, come forward. And we wound up learning so much more because... It was stereophonic sound. I've never been able to conduct classes like by myself. But I think growing up in the city, her hearing was extraordinary. I think you have to be a little louder in New York to be heard. Her influence on a whole generation, three generations, uh, continues to live and grow. And she's a truly legendary figure. She almost doesn't have to be the kind of genius writer that she is, but thank God she's got it all. Did she make you want to be a short story writer? That was the form that I started in, and I think it's the most difficult form of all, so it's great training. And she did it in such a seemingly effortless way, but it was extraordinarily laborious the way she wrote a story. I've read that Jane Austen worked in the same way Grace Bailey did. She kept scraps of paper in her apron pocket, (laughs) and she worked in the main room of her house. And when her nieces and nephews came, to visit, she made sure that there was a squeaking door that would alert her to interruptions so she could slip the paper back into her pocket. <laughs> Grace worked, it was like a Kurt Schwitter's collage. She would have restaurant bills taped to menus to bits and pieces of dry cleaning bills. And she would write the story a sentence at a time and attach one piece to another. 
I mean, you could have an exhibit of her collages, which are also her short stories. It reflects the fact that she was the mother of two and the adopted mother of 4,000. She was endlessly being interrupted the way mothers always are. And she worked her way around that set of interruptions and disruptions by making the most of every two minutes that she got free and clear. So when you would arrive for a conference in her crowded office, she would just be folding up this amazing masterpiece. It was a little like Proust's manuscript. And yet they seem to flow very, very naturally. You feel as though they'd been written in one breath. Breath is completely right. I mean, in reading the story today, I found there was a kind of uh, momentum that all I had to do was surrender to. It's hard to realize how radical they are in terms of form, how much is left out. Isaac Babel was a great favorite of hers, and he's an example of somebody who took out all the seeming structure and left something that's like an X-ray of the story, something that's very, very essential and purified. Precisely what makes it seem so natural is what makes it so hard to achieve. Well, the story that uh, you're reading today, My Father Addresses Me on the Facts of Old Age, was published in the magazine in 2002, which was about five years before Paley died. Do you think it's a good representation of what she did in all of her stories? I think it's a fair representation. She gives on the father in the story a lot of room to be wise and a lot of room to be foolish and human, deeply human. The seeming lack of superstructure is part of the genius of the story. So it's mostly pure conversation, but the language is so modified and so modulated that you have a physical sense of the two people talking and what they're doing in the room. I think it's a fair representation, and it's become, since I've read it for the program, one of my new favorite stories of hers. Oh, great. We'll, we'll talk more after the story. And now here's Alan Gerganus reading My Father Addresses Me on the Facts of Old Age by Grace Paley. My Father Addresses Me on the Facts of Old Age My father had decided to teach me how to grow old. I said, okay. My children didn't think it was such a great idea. If I knew how they thought, I might do so too easily. No, no, I said, it's for later, years from now. And besides, if I get it right, it might be helpful to you kids in time to come. They said, really? My father wanted to begin as soon as possible. For God's sake, he said, you can talk to the kids later. Now listen to me. Send them out to play. You are so distractible. We should probably begin at the beginning, he said. Change. First, there is change, which nobody likes, even men. You'd be surprised. You can do little things, putting cream on the corners of your mouth, also the heels of your feet. But here is the main thing. Oh, I wish your mother was alive. Not that she had time. But Pa, I said, Mama never knew anything about cream. I did not say she was famous for not taking care. Forget it, he said sadly. But I must mention squinting. Don't squint. Wear your glasses. Look at your aunt, so beautiful once. I know someone has said men don't make passes at girls who wear glasses, but that's an idea for a foolish person. There are many handsome women who are not exactly twenty-twenty. 
Please sit down, he said. Be patient. The main thing is this. When you get up in the morning, you must take your heart in your two hands. You must do this every morning. That's a metaphor, right? Metaphor? No, no, you can do this. In the morning, do a few little exercises for the joints. Not too much. Then put your hands like a cup over and under the heart, under the breast. He said tactfully, it's probably easier for a man. Then talk softly. Don't yell. Under your ribs, push a little. When you wake up, you must do this massage. I mean, pat, uh, stroke a little. Don't be ashamed. Very likely no one will be watching. Then you must talk to your heart. Talk? What? Say anything, but be respectful. Say maybe, heart, little heart, beat softly, but never forget your job, the blood. You can whisper also, remember, remember. For instance, I said to it yesterday, heart, heart, do you remember my brother Grisha, how he made work for you that day when he came to the store, and he said, your boss's money's in you right now how he put a gun in my face, and I said, Grisha, are you crazy? Why don't you ask me at home? I would give you. We were in this America not more than two years. He was only a kid, and he said, he said, who needs your workers' money for the movement only from your boss? Oh, little heart, you worked like a bastard, like a dog, like a crazy slave. Bang, bang, bang that day, remember? That's the story I told my heart yesterday, my father said. What a racket it made to answer me. I remember, I remember, till I was dizzy with the thumping. Why'd you do that, Pa? I don't get it. Don't you see? This is good for the old heart to get excited, just as good as for the person. Some people go running till late in life for the muscles, they say, but the heart knows the real purpose. The purpose is the expansion of the arteries a river of blood. It cleans off the banks, carries junk out of the system. I myself would rather remind the heart how frightened I was by my brother than go running in a strange neighborhood miles and miles with a city so dangerous these days. I said, oh. But then I said, well, thanks. I don't think you listened, he said. As usual, probably worried about the kids. They're not babies, you know. If you were better organized, you wouldn't have so many worries. I stopped by a couple of weeks later. This time he was annoyed. Why did you leave the kids home? If you keep doing this, they'll forget who I am. Children are like old people in that respect. They won't forget you, Pa, never in a million years. You think so? God has not been so good about a million years. His main interest in us began, actually, he put it down in writing 56, 5,700 years ago in the book. You know our book, I suppose. Okay, yes. Probably a million years is too close to his lifetime, if you could call it life, what he goes through. I believe he said several times when he was still in contact with us, I am a jealous God. Here and there he makes an exception. I read there are 3,000-year-old trees somewhere in some God-forsaken place. Of course, that's how come they're still alive. We should all be so God-forsaken. But no more joking around. I have been thinking what to tell you now. First of all, soon, maybe in 20, 30 years, you'll begin to get up in the morning for 5 a.m. In a farmer, that's okay. But for us, you'll remember everything you did, didn't, 
what you omitted, whom you insulted, betrayed. Betrayed, that is the worst. Do you remember you didn't go see your aunt? She was dying. That will be on your mind like a stone. Of course, I myself did not behave so well. Still, I was so busy those days. Long office hours, remember it was usual in those days for doctors to make house calls. No elevators, fourth floor, fifth floor, even a nice Bronx tenement. But this morning, I mean this morning, a few hours ago, my mother, your babushka, came into my mind, looked at me. Have I told you I was arrested? Of course I did. I was arrested a few times. But this time, for some reason, the policeman walked me past the office of the local jail. My mama was there. I saw her through the window. She was bringing me a bundle of clean clothes. She put it on the officer's table. She turned. She saw me. She looked at me through the glass with such a face, eye to eye, despair, no hope. This morning, 4 a.m., I saw once more how she sat there, very straight, her eyes. Because of that look, I did my term, my sentence, the best I could. I finished up six months at Archangelisk, where they finally sent me. Then no more, no more, I said to myself, no more saving Imperial Russia, the great pogrom maker from itself. Oh, Pa, don't make too much out of everything. Well, anyway, I want to tell you also how the body is your enemy. I must warn you, it is not your friend the way it was when you were a youngster. For example, greens, believe me, are overrated. Some people believe they will cure cancer. It's the style. My experience with maybe a hundred patients proves otherwise. Greens are helpful to God. That fellow Sandberg, the poet, I believe from Chicago, explained it. Grass tiptoes over the whole world, holds it in place. Except the desert, of course. Everything there is loose, flying around. How come you bring up God so much? When I was a kid, you were a strict atheist. You even spit on the steps of the synagogue. Well... God is very good for conversation, he said. By the way, I believe I have to tell you a few words about the stock market. Your brother-in-law is always talking about how brilliant he is investing, investing. My advice to you, stay out of it. But people are making money a lot. Read the paper. Even the kids are becoming millionaires. But what of tomorrow, he asks. Tomorrow, I said, they'll make another million. No, no, I mean tomorrow. I was there when tomorrow came in 1929. So I say to them and their millions, ha, 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 tomorrow will come. Go home now. I have a great deal more to tell you. Somehow I'm always tired. I'll go in a minute, but I have to tell you something, Pa. I had to tell him that my husband and I were separating, maybe even divorce, the first in the family. What? What, are you crazy? I don't understand you people nowadays. I married your mother when I was a boy. It's true I had a first-class mustache, but I was a kid, and you know I stayed married till the end. Once or twice she wanted to part company, but not me. The reason, of course, she was inclined to be jealous. He then gave me the example I'd heard five or six times before of what it was. One time, two couples went to the movies. Arzimich and his wife, you remember. Well, I sat next to his wife, the lady of the couple, by the way, a very attractive woman. And during the show, which wasn't so great, we talked about this and that, and laughed a couple times. When we got home, your mother said, Okay, 
anytime you want, right now. I'll give you a divorce. We will go our separate ways. Naturally, I said, what, are you ridiculous? My advice to you, stick it out. It's true, your husband, he's a peculiar fellow, but think it over. Go home, maybe you can manage at least till old age. Then, if you still don't get along, you can go to separate old age homes. Pa, it's no joke, it's my life. It is a joke. A joke is necessary at this time. But I'm tired. You'll see, in 30, 40 years from now, you'll get tired often. It doesn't mean you're sick. This is something important that I'm telling you. Listen, to live a long time, long years, you've got to sleep a certain extra percentage away. It's a shame. It was at least three weeks before I saw him again. He was drinking tea, eating a baked apple, one of twelve my sister baked for him every ten days. I took another one out of the refrigerator. Fathers and Sons was on the kitchen table. Most of the time he read history. He kept Gibbon and Prescott on the lampstand next to his resting chair. But this time, thinking about Russia for some reason in a kindly way, he was reading Turgenev. You were probably busy, he said. Where are the kids? With the father? He looked at me hopefully. No hope, Pa. By the way, you know this fellow Turgenev, he wasn't a show-off. He wrote a certain book and he became famous right away. One day he went to Paris and in the evening he went to the opera. He stepped into his box and just as he was sitting down, the people began to applaud. The whole opera house was clapping. He was known. Everybody knew his book. He said, I see Russia is known in France. You're a lucky girl that these books are in the living room, more on the table than on the shelf. Yes. Excuse me, also about Turgenev, I don't believe he was an anti-Semite. Of course, most of them were, even if they had brains. I don't think Gorky was. Gogol, probably. Tolstoy, no. Tolstoy had an opinion about the Mexican-American War, did you know? Of course, most were anti-Semites. Dostoevsky. It was natural, it seems. Ah, why is it we read them with such interest and they don't return the favor? That's what women writers say about men writers. Please don't start in. I'm in the middle of telling you some things you don't know. Well, I suppose you do know a number of Gentiles. You're more in the American world. I know very few. Still, I was telling you. Jews were not allowed to travel in Russia. I told you that. But a Jewish girl, if she was a prostitute, could go anywhere throughout all Russia. Also a Jew if he was a merchant first class. Even people with big stores were only second class. Who else? A soldier who had a medal, I think, St. George. Do you know nobody could arrest him, even if he was a Jew? If he killed someone, a policeman could not arrest him. He wore a certain hat. Why am I telling you all this? Well, it is interesting. Yes, but I'm supposed to tell you a few things, give advice, a few last words. Of course, the fact is, I am obliged because you are always getting yourself mixed up in politics. Because your mother and I were such radical kids, socialists, in constant trouble with the police. It was 1904 or 5. You have the idea it's okay for you, and it is not okay in this country, which is a democracy and you're running in the street like a fool. Your cousin saw you a few years ago in school, suspended, sitting with other children in the auditorium, 
not allowed to go to class. You thought Mama and I didn't know. Pa, that was 35 years ago in high school. Anyway, what about Mama? You mentioned the Arzimich family. She was a dentist, wasn't she? Right, a very capable woman. Well, Mama probably felt bad about not getting to school and, you know, becoming something, having a profession like Mrs. What's-Her-Name. I mean, she did run the whole house and family and the office and people coming to live with us, but she was sad about that, surely. He was quiet. Then he said, You're right. It was a shame. Everything went into me so I should go to school. I should graduate. I should be the doctor. I should have the profession. Poor woman. She was extremely smart. At least as smart as me. And Russia, and the movement, you know, when we were youngsters, she was considered the more valuable person. Very steady, honest. Made first-class contact with the workers, a real organizer. I could be only an intellectual. But maybe if life didn't pass so quick, speedy, like a winter day, short. You know, also, she was very musical. She had perfect pitch. A few years ago, your sister made similar remarks to me about Mama, questioning me like, history is my fault. Your brother only looked at me the way he does, not with complete approval. Then one day my father surprised me. He said he wanted to talk a little, but not too much, about love or sex, or whatever it's called, its troubling persistence. He said that might happen to me, too, eventually. It should not be such a surprise. Then, a little accusingly, After all, I have been a man alone for many years. Did you ever think about that? Maybe I suffered. Did it ever enter your mind? You're a grown-up woman, after all. But, Pa, I would never have thought of bringing up anything like that. You and Mama were so damn puritanical. I never heard you say the word sex till this day, either of you. We were serious socialists, he said. So? He looked at me, raising one nice, thick eyebrow. You don't understand politics too well, do you? Actually, I had thought of it now and then. His sexual aloneness. I was a grown-up woman. But I turned it into a tactful question. Aren't you sometimes lonely, Pa? I have a nice apartment. Then he closed his eyes. He rested his talking self. I decided to water the plants. He opened one eye. Take it easy. Don't overwater. Anyway, he said, Only your mother, a person like her, could put up with me. Her patience, you know. I was always losing my temper. And finally, with us, everything was all right. All right. Accomplished. Do you understand? Your brother and sister finished college, married. We had a beautiful grandchild. I was working very hard like a dog. We were only 50 years old then, but look, we bought the place in the country. Your sister and brother came often. You yourself were running around with a dozen kids in bathing suits all day. Your mama was planting all kinds of flowers every minute. Trees were growing. Your grandma, your babushka, sat on a good chair on the lawn. In back of her were birch trees. I put in a nice row of spruce. Then one day in the morning, she comes to me, my wife. She shows me a spot over her left breast. I know right away. I don't touch it. I see it. In my mind, I turn it this way and that. But I know in that minute, in one minute, everything is finished. Finished.
happiness, pleasure, finished. Years ahead, black. No, that minute had been told to me a couple of times years ago, maybe twice in ten years. Each time it nearly stopped my heart. No. He recovered from the telling. Now listen, this means, of course, that you should take care of yourself. I, I don't mean eat vegetables. I mean go to the doctor on time. Nowadays a woman as sick as your mama could have lived many years. Your sister, for example, after terrible operations, heart bypass, colon cancer. More she probably hides from me. She's running around to theater, concerts, probably supports Lincoln Center. Ballet, chamber, symphony, three, four times a week. But you must pay attention. One good thing, don't laugh, is bananas. Really, potassium. I myself eat one every day. But seriously, I'm running out of advice. It's too late to beg you to finish school, get a couple of degrees, a decent profession, be a little more strict with the children. They should be prepared for the future. Maybe they won't be as lucky as you. Well, no more advice. I restrain myself. Now I'm changing the whole subject. I will ask you a favor. You have many friends, teachers, writers, intelligent people, Jews, non-Jews. These days I think often, especially after telling you the story a couple of months ago, about my brother Grisha. I want to know what happened to him. I guess we know he was deported around 1922, right? Yes, yes, but why did they go after him? The last ten years before that, he calmed down quite a bit. Had a nice job, I think. But that's what they did. Did you know, even after the Palmer raids, that was maybe 1919, they kept deporting people. They picked them up at home, at the Russian Artist Club, at meetings. Of course, you weren't even around yet, maybe just born. They thought that these kids had in mind a big revolution like in Russia. Some joke. Ignorance. Grisha and his friends didn't like Lenin from the beginning. More Bakunin, Emma Goldman, her boyfriend, I forget his name. Berkman, right. They were shipped, I believe, to Vladivostok. There must be a file somewhere, archives salted away. Why did they go after him? Maybe they were mostly Jews. Anti-Semitism in the American blood from Europe, a little thinner, I suppose. But why didn't we talk? All the years not talking. Me seeing sick people day and night, strangers not talking to my brother till all of a sudden he's on a ship, gone. <sighs> Go home now, I don't have much more to tell you. Anyway, it's late, I have to prepare now. All of my courage, not for sleep, for waking in the early morning, maybe 3 or 4 a.m. I have to be ready for them, my morning visitors. Your babushka, your mama... Most of all, to tell you the truth, it's for your aunt, my sister, the youngest. She said to me that day in the hospital, Don't leave me here. Take me home to die. And I didn't. And her face looked at me that day and many, many mornings looks at me still. I stood near the door holding my coat. A space at last for me to say something. My mouth opens. Enough already, he said. I have the job to tell you how to take care of yourself, what to expect. About the heart, you know, it was not a metaphor. But in the end, a great thing. 
A really interesting thing would be to find out what happened to our Grisha. You're smart. You can do it. Also, you'll see, you'll be lucky in this life to have something you must do to take your mind off all the things you didn't do. Then he said, I suppose that is something like a joke. But, my dear girl, very serious. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. That was Alan Gerganis, reading My Father Addresses Me on the Facts of Old Age by Grace Paley. The story appeared in The New Yorker in June of 2002 and was included in the collection Here and Somewhere Else, published in 2007 by the Feminist Press. So, Alan, earlier in an email you said that you thought that Paley's sense of tensile structure in this story reminded you of Giacometti's. What did you mean by that? It's this, the story is almost like a single attenuated human form one of those long vertical figures that he made with post-its stuck to it, post-its being this exchange and this free-form conversation and dueling between the father and the daughter. It's an amazing achievement, I think, to be able to do so much in quotation marks. I think Paley is one of the greatest writers for the ear that we've ever had. I think she's in the company of Flannery O'Connor and Elmore Leonard, and maybe Henry Green, who are three writers who have the best ears going. It's hard to describe in the abstract how different writing is from speaking. And I think those of us who write are tempted to make speaking on the page much more like writing and much less like speaking. But Grace had this unbelievable extrasensory vision of how or auditory gift for how people really talk, how many prepositions are left out, how many shortcuts are taken, and how poetic and condensed the language can be on account. I think that's why the story manages to say so much in such a short space. Do you think she was reading aloud as she was writing? Always. Yeah. And one of the great gifts she gave to all her students was to encourage us never to do a draft without reading it aloud. It's a hard thing to remember, but it's a huge shortcut, and it's very, very helpful. It presupposes that it's going to be heard by other people, and by projecting an audience, you wind up having an editorial principle that's very helpful. Do you think she was thinking of the audience, or do you think she was just hearing the sound? I think she tried to keep the stories not literary, but spoken, 
and told, and she probably had a projected audience of people sitting around her kitchen table, which was always filled with odd and interesting immigrants and artists from out of town and neighbors. Well, going back to the idea of the structure of the story, it is freeform, but at the same time we have four defined conversations. You know, they see each other on four different occasions, and different information is conveyed in each of these conversations. What do you think is the point that the father is trying to get across? I think he's, in essence, telling her to trust herself, to investigate her history as he's tried to do and as he's failed to do, and warning her. One of the sad facts of the story, uh, the autobiography, is that just as her mother died of breast cancer, so did Grace. So it's weirdly prophetic that the father is warning her to go to the doctor more often and not to ignore herself the way her mother did. And Grace was always looking after other people and I think did very little to look after herself, just as her mother had done. I had a beautiful experience with her when she was in North Carolina about six months before she died. I saw on the Duke University bulletin board, who wants to drive Grace Paley around? She's here for women's studies and Jewish studies. $25 to the sucker who takes her. (laughs) And I went in and volunteered and had been in decades since I was her student. And I got to meet her at the airport. Alan, what are you doing here? This is crazy. (laughs) So I got to be with her for three days, go to the synagogue with her, go to women's studies with her, listen to her talk about other people's work and her own. And just before I drove her back to the airport, I asked her if she would mind coming back to my house. And I asked her to bless my desk. So she came into my study and daubed over my desk and put her hands on my desk. And writing has been so much easier ever since. (laughs) It was clear to both of us that we would never see each other in this life again. And she'd been such a huge factor in my life. Such a generous spirit when I was starting out. Always had faith in my work. And when we said goodbye, we said not goodbye, but we just looked at each other for about two and a half minutes while smiling. And that was it. It was all we needed to say. And then six months later when I heard writer Grace Bailey died at home, I felt completely up to date with her. I felt as if all the information, all the love had been evened out and exchanged perfectly clearly. And when I read the story, I felt that kind of transaction was going on between the father and the daughter. Right. It's interesting to me that you talk about the story as though this narrator is undoubtedly Grace and her father. Do you think it's very directly autobiographical? Do you think these are things her father did say or might have said? I mean, I know many of the facts are true to life. Her father was a doctor. He did have a brother, Grisha, who was deported. She divorced her first husband and had a great, happy second marriage. Uh, A lot of the facts in the story bear comparison with her life. But it doesn't really matter. One of the things that one feels with writers who matter immensely is this almost personal possession as if you want to make everything autobiographical and I bring an extra element to it in trying to read the story I tried to find an accent that was acceptable and somewhere between uh, North Carolina gentility and Lower East Side Hester Street reality Mm -hmm. and I tried in my work to 
work this part of the street where grace always works somewhere between the inevitable and the impossible so that it's not at all a realistic story. It's a sort of spirit dialogue between these two people. And I think it's the dialogue that she wishes she'd had with her father, whether it actually happened or not. I think all of us who've lost parents and close friends have this ideal conversation that we run in our heads, wishing that it could have finally transacted exactly the way we wanted it to. And part of the gorgeousness of writing is that we finally get to set down the truth for other people to see and hear. Though interestingly, it doesn't go the way she wants it to in the course of the story. You know, she can't even get a word in to tell him that she's splitting from her husband and then he's disapproving and she tells him not to make jokes and doesn't go back for at least three weeks and and so on. I love his contrariness and wanting the children out of the house on one visit and then resenting her leaving them at home <laughs> the next visit. And I think that's part of the reason we really care so much about this guy. He seems to have so much to impart, and yet he's sort of clumsy in doing it and backs into information. One of the facts about his life is that he was arrested as a radical in Tsarist Russia, and he was released from prison in honor of the Tsar's birthday. The Tsar released 40 prisoners on his 40th birthday in honor of himself and allowed Grace's father to come to the States. So it's very interesting and odd how what a Russian story this really is. I think Russians, as a people, tend to talk in wonderful philosophical and religious generalities. And this is one of those conversations that could be lifted out of Chekhov, where the drama is all in the talking. And I think, in retrospect, that Grace is probably the greatest Russian-American writer. There's something she gets about this voice. It's almost too right to be true. It's true. It's the patriarchy embodied. And it's yeah. always having the last word, even when he's admitting to mistakes. It's very rare that he actually lets himself be vulnerable when he announces having seen and diagnosed his wife's breast cancer and understanding that that's the end of everything. I think it's very powerful. It's like Chekhov, who never truly diagnosed his own consumption, but must have known that he contracted it from his brother when he was taking care of him. So mm -hmm. it's a lot of doctors in Russian literature, and here's another one. Well, you think part of the message that he wants to convey to her has to do with how haunted and vulnerable he is in his old age with all of these faces reproaching him, you know, his sister who wants to be taken home to die, who he didn't take home, his brother who was deported, his wife looking at him in a certain way, his mother looking at him when he's arrested. Is he warning her not to do things that you'll regret in old age, or is he just warning her that she's going to have to live with this too? I think he's warning her about time itself. The very act of attempting to tell her or warn her is almost the message in and of itself. There's something very fond and compassionate and bossy about him at the same time. And I think that's what makes him recognizable as everybody's father or grandfather. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that stands out so much in this story is its humor. It's a sad story. Basically, everything he says is quite sad. And yet there are lines that just make you laugh. And notable to me was the moment where she says, you know, 
Pa, this isn't a joke, this is my life. And he says, a joke is necessary at this time. Why is it necessary? Well, I think humor is the way the Jews have always survived and the way all people survive. Without humor, we're completely doomed, I think. And we reach for it when we're most despondent and when things seem at a complete impasse. And it's a tool that's available to him, even in the last line when he acknowledges that the whole thing is a joke, but also very serious, my dear. It's a way of pointing her back to her own unbelievable sense of humor. I love his contradictoriness of inviting a conversation about his sexual abstinence. Here's a guy who's been like William Carlos Williams, a total Dr. Horn dog, probably accepting sexual favors in those fifth floor Bronx walk-ups and, you know, just generally being a man of the world. And then he wants some pity that he is as old as he is and not able to have a woman friend come up. And when she finally opens up the subject at his invitation, he's completely unable to follow through and says, I have a very nice apartment and lets mm-hmm. it go at that. I mean, it's that's also so familiar for those of us who've tried to draw certain subjects out of our parents, knowing that it was the last opportunity for them to tell certain things that you knew they wanted to tell, but they just haven't got the strength or the will or the force of habit to break through the resistance that's been there all along. So to include that, instead of making it a false, easy revelation, I think gives us tremendous insight into both those characters. Well, what he's telling her is basically he's lonely. Absolutely. And he's warning her as she divorces her husband that this is waiting for her if she's not careful, just as he warns her about the exercises and that amazing sustained image of taking your heart in your hand and massaging it and coddling your heart and whispering its secrets to it. But also making it pound. That's right. Reminding it of difficult moments. Well, it is like uh, cardio, literally. Um, (laughs) Just keep, keep the rate up once a day. And he does it with the past and the injustice of having a brother who's deported before you can ever make peace with him. Why do you think it's his brother that he's so focused on in his old age? I mean, he went 50 years without trying to find him. I think he's doing the final cost accounting that we people do when they're dying about tell Moira I should never have said that at her wedding. There's these little notes in the bottle that we send out to try to compensate for the terrible things that we've done in the heat of the moment. And I think that he's reliving the robbery at the store, which would put him in a terrible situation with his brother stealing from his boss, and probably filled with resentment over the callousness with which his brother jeopardized his career. I'm just assuming that they didn't speak for that reason and other reasons for years. And then suddenly when the brother is gone and there's no recourse and there's no hope of finding him, this terrible longing for the brother... We all feel that about our difficult siblings. It's interesting that she wrote this story in her own old age. If she wasn't very old, but it was five years before she died. It was long after she lost her father, long after the divorce from the first husband and so on. When I was reading the story, I thought maybe she had taken notes of the conversation that she'd had 15 or 20 years earlier. But 
the brilliance of Grace is that she didn't need to take notes. I mean, she seemed to live in a kind of a room full of vitamin C pills to give people <laughs> and stacks of manuscripts and books that were falling off the desk. But I think she kept these conversations in her, what they call in the Bible, the, her ponder heart. And when it was time to write the story, all that information was right there and available to her. Because I think, like a lot of old people, he'd probably said many of these lines over and over again. <laughs> there are references to how many times she'd heard each story. And that's what makes it almost a sacramental story and a liturgical story, because we all have about 30 or 40 stories which we've heard and reheard and told and retold over and over that are the family lore, in essence. Well, thank you so much, Alan. I've loved it, Deborah. Thank you. It's a real honor to read her story. Alan Gerganis is the author of five books of fiction, including Local Souls and Plays Well with Others. His first novel, Oldest Living Confederate Widow Tells All, sold more than four million copies and was adapted for television and stage. Grace Paley died in 2007. Her books include The Little Disturbances of Man, Later the Same Day, and The Collected Stories, which was published in 1994. You can download a hundred previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, including two that explore other Grace Paley stories, in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the digital edition at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. Online and in the digital edition, you can hear the short stories in the magazine read by their authors. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.